I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. Everybody, welcome back. Today, we want to talk about something that is near and dear to our hearts, and that is evidence-based medicine, or like we'll call it during a fight or an argument with each other, the data. So you may be sitting around the kitchen table at your station talking about the data or the evidence or, well, they say. So all too often, we'll drop those words, but we won't know really where they came from. Yeah, or or we don't talk about the data or the evidence at all. We just say, mm-hmm. well, let's just do it because that's what I was told to do. Right. Yeah, that's what I was told to do. Or, well, I read it in this magazine or a, a, an article that I found online that was shared to me, but I'm not going to tell anybody, but secretly it was really Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah or, or you just throw out, well, the data shows. Oh. Well, I mean, yeah, scientific studies show that uh, four out of five dentists prefer Trident or whatever it is. <laughs> like, well, as long as no one's going to challenge that, I guess I can just say whatever I want. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think it's important to talk about, like, where do we get where do we get the information from to do what we do? I know, you know, we, we've talked in the past about. You know, well, I learned this in paramedic school. I learned this in EMT school. Mm-hmm. Um, I read this out of a book, or more uh, more recently, probably I read it in a protocol. Right. Um, but how many services out there is the physician who's writing the protocols? Either they just got the protocols from another service, or they're not even in emergency medicine. They're in family practice, or they're from uh, you know a standalone um, urgent care. We have a lot throughout the country that uh, just medical directors that are disengaged and they just put in protocols because someone else uses it. And then it just gets so diluted that uh, as we trace it back, we're not even really sure where we got this information from. It just is what we do. Right. Absolutely. And I know uh, several cases where you actually have the paramedics writing protocols and they give them to the doctor out of convenience. And the physician's like, sweet. Yep. Looks good to me. Looks safe. That looks common. And they sign off on it. So again, like you're saying, where, where is, where is the data coming from? Yeah, and so I think uh, anytime we're given uh, information or we would what we would call data or scientific evidence, I think we should always question it. I think we should always say, okay, you, you know, show me the show me the data. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times people can't, uh, and so that should give us a, a time to step back and go, mm, maybe we need to we need to look into this a little bit yeah. more. And it just becomes a thing where we you know, and um, it becomes a thing where the scariest phrase in medicine, or actually the scariest phrase in anything, is. Well, we've always done it that way. Oh, man, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. That is one of the worst things that you can hear in our profession. So if if you hear that from your crew, somebody at your department, um, or if you're thinking it yourself, then that's that's a signal that either you've become complacent or stagnant. And unfortunately, in our profession, which is medicine, that's one of the worst things that can happen. But I, I think what it boils down to is our gross misunderstanding as a profession of what comprises research, all the little intricacies of it. Because, man, it takes a lot more to actually understand what research is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then we just end up believing things that may or may not be true. So I'll, I'll give you some examples. So this is not um, this is not medicine, but I'll just give you some examples and you can answer these questions. And as, as people are <laughs> listening to this, they can uh, kind of play along. I wouldn't really yell it out as you're driving or if you're in a public place because you'll sound pretty silly. But Or maybe you should. Oh, maybe. Yeah. So if we look at history, um, so uh, when George Washington was young, he chopped down a what kind of tree? <sighs> 
Yeah, just yell it out. You know where I grew up. Yeah. Cherry, <laughs> cherry tree. <laughs> cherry tree. And he also had, uh, what were his teeth made of? The wood from that cherry wood tree. Wood from the cherry tree. <laughs> and then Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon Syndrome. He was mean because he was short, short mm-hmm. of course. And then uh, we all know the quote we learned in school, separation of church and state. It's a big buzzword. And yeah. of course, uh, we know exactly where that came from, right? right? It came from the Constitution, hmm. uh, maybe the Bill of Rights, hmm. maybe the Declaration of Independence. Hmm. Uh, I'm really not sure. I wasn't very good at uh, Yeah, I really don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea where that came and, from. And then everyone knows this one. I mean, this is absolutely true. Um, in the Southern Hemisphere, when you flush a toilet... <laughs> It flows in one direction. What happens if you go to the northern hemisphere? What happens to it? Well, what I just got was one direction's in the toilet. So <laughs> that's when I get out of that. Well, that is scientific. <laughs> that is that is data based on evidence. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what happens to the, the water in a toilet when you go to another hemisphere? You know, I've heard it flows the other yeah, way. Yeah. And it's actually called the Coriolis effect. What? Um, it's, uh, it's, it has a it's name? True, oh, yeah. It's, it's, uh, you can look it up. It's absolutely... Um, it's absolutely a thing, um, but all of these things have in one have th- one thing in common. What's that? They're all fake. What? All fake. Like fake news. Fake news. <laughs> Every single one of those is fake. So you just pretty much made the whole Santa's not real feeling. That just no, all came Santa flooding is real. Back. That's yeah. Santa's not real. I don't want to burst your bubble. You have no. We're gonna have to we end do, this right now. We need we're to put to stop. A explicit label or something on this one. <laughs> if you're in the car with your kids. I mean, I was 15 when I found out, so I mean. <laughs> so what you're saying is we we have a lot of tradition. Would you call it tradition? Yeah, tradition. That's, yeah. And that's another dangerous thing. Oh, my gosh. That's a dangerous Especially thing. Especially in our industry, man. That that has held back so much change and so much progress. It's not even funny. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so we end up doing the same thing we do today. You know, I've heard people, you know, constantly saying, well, you know, this person has 20 years of experience. This one has oh. 25 of years of experience. Well, is that good? I don't know. Because if they're still practicing like they did when they first got out of school 20 Absolutely. or 25 years ago, they're irrelevant. Yeah. And how much training have they done? How much training and then how much teaching have they done? Exactly. So so if you look at, at, some, of these, at, at some of these data, um, when we're presented with this stuff, we need to question it. And we need to say, show me the evidence. Yep. Um, so there's a couple different ways that I think we we do this, especially um, in in not just in pre-hospital, but just in emergency medicine. You know, do things word of mouth. You know, if I trust you and you tell me something, I'm likely going to take that as as truth. Especially if I have a really good reputation, right? Exactly, exactly. So um, maybe it's somebody I trust. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it's uh, it's like I said, just tradition. Um, and uh, if it's respected authorities, you know, we go to conferences and, uh, the, you know, the, this is probably a big, uh, this is a big sticking point with me because, you know, the definition of an expert, right? I mean, there's a scientific de- definition of an expert and that's anybody with a laptop computer more than 50 miles from their home <laughs> is yes. by definition an expert. And, um, you know, I've been to these conferences where people just throw out all this stuff and stuff that they're doing and they know you can't question them on it, so you just have to kind of take it as face value rather than, you know, we should be really be saying, you know, as uh, Reagan said, you know, trust but verify. Or as one of my mentors would say is, I'm not questioning you, but I am questioning your sources. Yeah, and and one thing that I think I've seen what you're talking about is, would that person ever open up the ability to be questioned? Would they welcome that and say, you know what, I- I'm going to defend it. 
This is what I think. This is what I've seen. This is what the data says, and I'm willing to defend it. So let's talk about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like going to a doctor, and then you say, well, I'd like to get a second opinion. They get upset about it. Yeah, but they shouldn't. They shouldn't. They should welcome that. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. all that does is verify your stance, and it also... It, you you gain more credibility at that point. Well, let's go. Let's let's look at um, actually how some of these standards are made. You know, where do we get in a protocol that if a patient is having chest pain, we should do X, Y, and Z. If a patient is having abdominal pain, if a patient is in a car wreck, if a patient complains of neck pain, this is what you should do. You know, where do we where do we get that evidence? Um, and uh, you can go to medicclasscitizen.com and you can uh, look at some of these graphics that we'll be talking about. But really, this comes down to scientific evidence. Mm. And if you think about this uh, like a pyramid, the least amount of evidence is on the bottom. Okay, so this is uh, what we would call anecdotal. It's the, you know what, as, a, as one person, I've seen this once or twice, so we should change everything based on this. Yeah, just trust me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I saw this once. That's just not really a good place to go because if you say, well, can can that be tested and can we reproduce that? Mm-hmm. Likely you can't. So that would not be a good place to say everyone should do this all the time because I did it once and it worked. So to me, that that is the equivalent of a war story. Exactly. That is that is somebody saying, you know, there was this one time I had this bad call and man, you know, there was and they go into this elaborate description of it. And then this is why you should believe me, because I used it and it worked. Exactly. And, and I'll give you uh, I'll give you a great example of this. There was a, uh, a case in World War Two where uh, guys were in this airplane and they uh, airplane caught on fire and they were up, um, I don't know, 15, 20,000 feet. They didn't have parachutes. So the one guy jumped out of the plane mm. without a parachute. That's brave. Hit some trees, fell in a snowbank, and he survived. 18,000 feet. Yeah. Goodness gracious. So so here's my evidence. I think we should jump out of airplanes without parachutes <laughs> because I know of a guy yeah. that did it and he survived. Yeah. You know, there, there's no one on the face of this earth that earth that would test that. Right. You know, that's, uh, that's just ridiculous. And so we, as we move up to this pyramid... We move up and we're able to test things. We're able to test them, reproduce them, and get the same results. That's really where we want to be with evidence. And the further we move up this pyramid, the more evidence we have, the better the information is. Right. And 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 like you're saying, with this pyramid approach, at the very bottom we have we have what is called gobsat. So what what exactly is Gobsat? Yeah. So so Gobsat, as we're talking about all these very high academic mm-hmm. issues, Gobsat uh, is good old boys sitting at a table. Yep. What does that sound like? Um, sounds like the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. The, the day room. Yeah. Let's. Uh, yeah. Let's. Uh, <laughs> let's. Let's just sit around and tell some war stories, and then yeah. we'll decide what we want to do. And it's actually a real thing. Now, sometimes that is the best we have. And as we move up this this pyramid and we get away from that gobset or we get away from these individuals, we move up towards doing trials. Mm. Now, in emergency medicine, trials are very difficult to do. The top trial that we can do is what's as we well, as we move up, we can do randomized trials. So a randomized trial is something that they did in Seattle 
uh, years ago, they did a randomized trial on ALS versus BLS in cardiac arrest. And they literally randomized as a cardiac arrest came in, they would randomize and they would send um, an ALS unit to that cardiac arrest. And the mm. next one that came in, they would send a BLS unit and it would either alternate or go randomly until that they had enough cardiac arrests and they essentially ran equal numbers of cardiac arrests. And then they put that data together to see who did better. Turns out the BLS trucks actually had a better outcome Um of cardiac arrest in the ALS trucks. So when you're talking about this study in particular, and this is one thing that I want people to understand, this is how you move up the pyramid, is that how many cardiac arrests are we talking? Are we talking five or 10? Exactly. Or how many are we talking? Yeah. How yeah. many were in this study? So if there were th- if there were four, mm-hmm. that's not great. Right. If there were 4,000, yeah. because what you have to do is you're trying to predict what is the outcome going to be? Now, there's a lot of things you have to look at. So even when someone says, there's the evidence, you should not make a practice change about that. We have to look at it a little bit deeper. Yeah. So as we move up that chain, we get to what we call the really the highest level, and that is a randomized double blind trial. So there's no bias. Absolutely no bias. So a, so a blinded trial would be if you have a patient that's going to get a medication, uh, both of them are clear and both of them come unlabeled. So you know what you're giving the patient, but the patient doesn't know. Uh, randomized double blinded is you don't know what you're giving the patient and the patient doesn't know what they're getting mm. because we do have this placebo effect, which is, you know, I don't know, you know, we heard lots of stories and I've probably done this myself of someone that's having a lot of pain and uh, they think they're getting morphine, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you give them a little bit of saline, all of yeah. a sudden their pain goes away. That's a normosaline, by the way. <laughs> exactly. That, that's what that is. <laughs> um, and then if you can get to the peak of the pyramid, which is all of these randomized trials, several trials put together, all mixed up together in what's called a meta-analysis. Yeah. When you can get to that point, you know, without uh, with very little doubt that that is appropriate evidence-based medicine. And and what makes it evidence-based is that the results are very likely to be reproducible. Exactly, exactly. And so we talk about things like Mm p-values and a p-value being 0.05 or lower. And really all that is, is that's 5%. What you're saying is if we do this over and over and over and over, 95% of the time, you're going to get the same results. Yep. Only 5% of the time you're not. And so we call that statistically significant. So that's something you should write a protocol after. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that begs the question, how do you do some of these trials in emergency medicine? Yeah. Okay. And the next, the other question is, does every um, evidence-based model have to have a randomized trial? Mm. And so really the answer to that is no. There are certain things that we can find out without doing a randomized trial. Let's go back to parachutes. Do parachutes work? Well, we would all say yes. And I would say, show me the data. And, and you might say, well, there is none. <laughs> so we really should do a randomized trial on parachutes. So let's, uh, you know, let's get a hundred people, put backpacks on all of them, pack half of them with parachutes and the other half with a bed sheet, throw them all out of a plane. They all pull a ripcord. Half of them, their parachutes will open. They'll survive. And the other half, well, we don't know until we really test it under scientific method, right? Absolutely. Like, no, we're pretty sure what's 
going to happen. You make so, sure there's a waiver signed beforehand. <laughs> yeah, be very careful of who you're going to pick for the right. for the control group. So, so we don't need randomized trials. We'll be really clear on that, especially in emergency medicine. It's very difficult to do a randomized trial. Uh, and so we do the best we can with the information that we have, but we have to be able to test it and measure it. Absolutely. And let, let me tell you how I approach looking at a study or how I approach research in general. Let's say if, and I know one really hot topic right now is push dose pressors. Everybody's talking about it. And my students are asking me about it. People are talking about it at the hospital. You know, when are we going to start using push dose pressor doses in the back of the ambulance? Well, honestly, I haven't read enough research for it to really to, to excite me or to start making me look in that direction. And I don't know if you're the same way, but anytime I look at research, I start off skeptical. I, I, I start off saying, all right, this has to be significant enough for me to say, you know what, that's pretty legit because what can people do with research? What, what can people do? They can manipulate variables. Absolutely. And they can get the outcome that they want. And so that is any, any type of research, any type of study. And I know I may be backtracking a little bit by talking about this, but whenever we start talking about something around the, the fire station or around the EMS service about, well, check out this new protocol or check out what this county is doing versus what this city is doing, you have to look at the research that they, dis- they made that decision off of with a skeptical mindset, or at least I feel that way, because if, it, if I can shoot holes in it or I can see where variables were manipulated in order to get the outcome that they wanted, then is it really that credible? Oh, absolutely. And, and this happens, you know, we have, a, we have an unfortunate uh, term in medicine. It's called publish or perish, yeah. which is we got to publish, 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 publish. And everyone tries to get all their stuff out there without it being appropriately vetted. Um, and we've got to be very careful. In fact, one of my mentors said, you know, when it comes to practice change, um, you don't want to be the, the first mm-hmm. to jump on the wagon, but you definitely don't want to be the last. You'll want to be somewhere in the middle because if you're first, it may not be appropriately vetted. Okay. So as we look at, as we look at some of, uh, of these evidence and we look at the way that we do things in EMS and as we move up this, uh, this pyramid, I'll give you a couple examples. So one is a big hot topic now, uh, recently is, is uh, full spinal mobilization. Mm. Um, and so we would say, does full spinal mobilization work? Is it needed? Is it important? I think we would all say absolutely. Absolutely, it's important. It protects the spine. It prevents secondary damage. But I think we should ask, well, does it? Right. You know, where do we get the information? And in fact, uh, if we go back to even where trauma started, the golden hour, do you know where the first golden hour discussion came from? Nope. It came on the back of a napkin. Hmm. Um, sitting, sitting in a restaurant and it was a good concept, but it never really got the appropriate vetting that it should. So if we talk about spinal immobilization, so spinal mobilization, actually it was a series of case studies from 1966. It was over 25 years and it never actually showed a benefit. Mm. And in fact, now what are they starting to find? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that it's actually causing harm. Yep. But that was in 1966 and now we are in 2019 and oh. we're just now starting to make these changes. So when you look at the evidence, it was all anecdotal. 
Yep. It was all observational. There was nothing that was actually tested. And in fact, it actually came really into question in 2001. 18 mm. years ago was really when it really started to go, do we really need to be doing this? So you know what terrifies me about that? That's one aspect about what we do. That's just one little thing. Absolutely. So what about all the rest of it? Exactly. So that's that's why I think you have to look at everything through a fairly skeptical lens. Not skeptical, but like we were talking earlier, trust but verify. Right. We have to look at everything and say, okay, I want to look at this objectively. Do I really – is this treatment really beneficial for the patient? Because, exactly. Because we're supposed to do no harm first. Exactly. It's supposed to be goal number one. We're supposed to at least not make the problem worse. Don't kill them faster. <laughs> and, that, and that's, you know, that's an opportunity that I really hope that everybody listening today will take from here on out. ACLS, for an example, let's just use the American Heart Association courses as an example. Sure, you need to know the algorithm. However, also know why they made the algorithm. Use the sources and the evidence. Absolutely. And that's when they start talking about levels of evidence and classes of recommendation. Yeah, and the American Heart, you know, to their credit, they have evolved into this thing of actually trying to make their guidelines a little more evidence-based. And so, like you said, they have this level of evidence um, and they promote that, but then they do silly things. <laughs> Le the highest level of evidence for cardiac arrest in, in, ACL, in ACLS, highest level of evidence is chest compressions and defibrillation. Mm -hmm. Level, it's a, it's a class A recommendation um, and it's, a, it's strong clinical data that we should be doing it. And I completely agree with that. In fact, I think it's the, it is the only thing that has shown a benefit in cardiac arrest. Yet when we get to a higher level of care, and I'm using air quotes here, a higher level of care, <laughs> um, as we move up advanced providers, our outcomes actually get worse. Yep. And I think one of those reasons is we worry about things like medications. So, you know, I'd ask for a show of hands, who gives epinephrine in a cardiac arrest? I guarantee you, everybody put your hands back on the steering wheel. Every hand is going up right now. <laughs> yeah. Every single person yeah. gives epinephrine and cardiac arrest. The evidence for, car for epinephrine and cardiac arrest is non-existent. It was done in a dog lab back in the, the 60s and the 70s, and then gobsat, mm -hmm. everyone agreed that, yeah, we should be giving epinephrine, yet it is a class 2B indication. There are no data that says that epinephrine works. And in fact, in 2010, the American Heart Association published in their guidelines that no vasopressor given at any time during a cardiac arrest has ever shown a benefit in neurological or increase in neurological outcome of cardiac arrest. Right. And now a lot of the uh, the advanced provider manuals and things like that, they discuss sodium channel blockers. They, they discuss antiarrhythmics the same way. What is the benefit of amiodarone? What is, what is the benefit of amiodarone over lidocaine, over procainamide? Exactly, exactly. And so what do you do with that? Well, you have to do, you have to do a trial. So Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium did an, a trial called ALPS, and it was uh, amiodarone versus lidocaine versus placebo. And what they showed is there was no benefit of, of, over amiodarone or lidocaine over placebo in cardiac arrest. Um, and I think there's a, as you dig a little bit further, there were a little bit of biases in there. Mm -hmm. um, however, it's not a complete controlled environment. It's difficult to do uh, 
research and cardiac arrest because there's no one silver bullet. Right. But what that shows us is we've got to stop focusing on the things that don't matter. Right. We've got to stop saying, oh, we've got to get an IV and we have to give epinephrine. Epinephrine has never been shown as a benefit in cardiac arrest. In fact, there was a trial um, published in Japan with 12,000 patients that showed that those got, that got epinephrine actually did worse. Than, than those that did not. And if you think about the way that the drugs work and you think about the the pathology behind cardiac arrest, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, think about the last time you gave epinephrine for um, anaphylactic reaction or just an allergic reaction. What did you see happen to their heart? Yeah, absolutely. It beats out of their chest. Dude, just and- getting, just getting a... a- a nerve block for a dental cleaning. Yeah. My heart was beating out of my chest. And that's point three. Yeah. Point three. <laughs> but we see people coming in in cardiac arrest that have had six milligrams of epinephrine. Yeah. Do you know what that does? I mean, it's such a vasoconstrictor. You've essentially cut off all blood flow to your brain. Yeah. Completely negating any of the benefit from doing chest compressions. So on that note, I want to bring up what is the marker of success? Because whenever, and that's something else that people need to look into whenever they're, whenever you are objectively looking at these, at the research findings, what is their marker of success? Well, we got to pulse back. Yeah. Is that success? Yeah. Because man, that's, man, I succeed all the time. Right. Which absolutely goes to your point before of manipulating data. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we have to find out what is your end point? What are you saying is success? What are your inclusions? What are your exclusions? Those are all things that you have to read. So for instance, if we say, um, I've, he- I've heard people report um, survival of cardiac arrest of 40 or 50%. Well, is that all comers? Is that just VFib, mm-hmm. VF? Is that all witnessed? Is that all EMS treated? Is that, you know, there's, there's so many factors in there that actually when you start digging, it's like, well, okay, that wasn't exactly how mm-hmm. you represented it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And hey, one thing that I think would be beneficial for people to take away from, I want to dive a little deeper into the the definitions of the classes of recommendation and the levels of evidence. And I, I don't necessarily want to go through every single one because there are several, but whenever we, whenever, and I, I challenge you folks, whenever you, the next time you take your pals course or your refresher, first off, don't, don't just, you know, go through the motions. Get the book, get the the latest update, the latest revised version, and dig into it a little bit. You know, look before the protocols, look before the algorithms, and actually dive into the classes of recommendation, the levels of evidence. So, in a nutshell, a class the the class one is considered to be the strongest recommendation. So again, yeah, we're looking, we should do it all the time. Yep, yep, and never withhold it. Absolutely, all the way down to class three. What does that mean? Don't ever do it. It's yeah. harmful. Yeah. So again, we do no harm. That is right. our first goal. So again, just in repeat, class one is the strongest. We're going to do it every time, all the way down through class three, harmful. Never touch right. it. Right. And then the class two are in the middle of, well, we don't really know. We're not sure, <laughs> but maybe you could. It's probably not going to hurt. So go ahead and just try it. Yeah. But And where you did know, you say Epi was? We're really on the fence. Is a 2B mm-hmm. recommendation. Gotcha. So it's almost harmful. Yeah. So imagine you go into, uh, you know, a, a surgeon, get brain surgery and like, well, I'm going to do this to you. There's really no evidence to it. Um, but it's, you know, it, it might be okay. It might not, sure. but it's probably not a big deal. It's not really recommended, but it's not not recommended. So yeah. I think I'll, 
Yeah. Let's get it going somewhere else. Yeah, let's just let's just go with it. Just give it a try. Yeah. What not? does this button do? I don't know. Push it to find out. <laughs> and so that that is the class of recommendation for a treatment or a therapy. But let's talk about the levels of evidence. Yeah. And so this kind of I think this brings home and this reinforces the overall point behind today. Um, whenever we talk about level A evidence. Level A, that is the top of the pyramid that Jason was talking about. So when we talk about the top of the pyramid, that is the highest quality of evidence. You have meta-analysis done at that point. Yeah. What are what are some, you know, as we look at some things that have that um, in acute coronary syndrome, aspirin, gold standard um, in acute coronary syndrome. In fact, if we look at uh, another thing in research that we call number needed to treat. So a number needed to treat, how many patients do we need to treat till... Um, one patient gets a benefit from that treatment. Aspirin is at the top of that. And I think it's like three. Mm. Uh, number needed to treat is three patients till the, uh, one gets a benefit. Usually if you're in the 25 or 30 number needed to treat, you're doing really, really well. Mm. Wow. So we go all the way from the top of the pyramid to all the way at the bottom of the pyramid. Remember that term gobsat where we were talking about good old boys sitting around a table? Well, the medically sound name for that is a level C-EO, which is, eh, it's just expert opinion. Yeah. So again, what makes me an expert? Absolutely. And this was frustrating, you know, so for some of you that are older, not you, Brandon, but in uh, the 2000 (laughs) standards... Back when you were a baby. I, I, I used to take offense to that. <laughs> and then I passed 29. Now I'm like. <laughs> you're, you're so the two for those of you that have been doing this a while, you remember the 2000 standards uh, is when amiodarone came out. But if you remember, amiodarone wasn't called amiodarone. It was called cordarone. And it was $95 a vial for mm. 150 milligrams. And that was back when? Yeah, it was in 2000. <clears throat> there was really no data to show that they need a bolus of 300 milligrams. The only thing that really had been done was 150 slow, but we give 300. And um, what we see in electrophysiology now with uh, ectopy, we actually see the electrophysiologists using lidocaine more than amiodarone. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it seems like procainamide's creeping its way back. It is. It is. Um, you know, so that was taken out of the standard somewhere maybe around 2005. Um, and then most recently put back in. I've never heard of it given. I've never known anybody that's given it. Yeah. And, and I don't know if this is overzealous or over aggressive, but again, this these are principles that I like to teach my students, that I like to talk about whenever I'm going through lectures. And I, I like to discuss where the research came from and the strength and the validity of it. And so with that to say, as an EMS educator, I need to know that myself because Absolutely. I need to know what do I need to be teaching them? Yeah, it may it's not in the protocol this year, but four years from now there's going to be a new edition with new research. So hey guys, this there's there is a balance between knowing where we are right now and kind of like you saying before, playing prediction on what you need because I want them to at least to have heard of it before. If it's coming down the pipe, if there is evidence and A8, that's one thing that I appreciate about AHA because they kind of give you a little hint. If you look at the last guidelines versus now, they say, well, we're starting to find that there is no conclusive evidence and it's not, they're not coming out and saying that, well, it's going to be taken away out of the next one. Right. But when is the next one? Right. I mean, in the past, AHA only put standards out every five years. Right. So if research came out two years after guidelines, 
they're probably not going to make the 2005 so so or, or, or the next one so to give you an example so dr gordon avey from the university of arizona who did all of the research and publications on chest compression only cpr he presented this data in the mid 90s wow. to the aha and they didn't change so the 90 the 2000 standards came out they didn't change the 2005 standards came out and they didn't change so right after that uh, and I remember maybe remembering the years um, a, a little bit incorrectly, so I apologize for that. But right after, about 10 years after they presented it, uh, Dr. Avey wrote a letter to the American Heart Association that said, we can no longer in good conscience follow, follow your guidelines. Wow. And so they pulled all those guidelines. He... Uh, you know he's a fellow in the American Heart Association, and someone asked him, "Well, how do you uh, how do you do those guidelines?" And he said, "I I don't know. I I haven't been certified in American Heart CPR in in twenty years." Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, so he looked at the evidence, and they made a practice change. Yeah, um, in their hospital system and in their EMS because the evidence was clear, um, and it was too difficult for American Heart to make those changes um, or, or and put those into the guidelines. So I feel like some folks that are driving right now may have just had a Santa's not real moment <laughs> because I think what you're implying is that these, these are not rules. These are not things that, that we absolutely have to stick to. Yeah. It's Captain Barbosa in, uh, in Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean. You know, it's like, well, you have to stick to the pirate code. And he's like, first of all, I must do nothing. And second of all, the codes are like uh, guidelines. They're just suggestions. Yep. So that's pretty much what we, we, we bet all of our chips on. Right. And we think, uh, well, if we're sitting in court, we got to have be able to say, well, this is what... Uh, this is what the protocol says or this, and, and, and maybe to some degree there is. Um, but as we're looking at studies, we have to, for ourselves, um, decide if they're valid. Yep. Um, and so we look at different kinds of studies and, and we'll put this online as well. But the four things we have to look at are what's the background? Why are they doing it? What other studies have been done along with this? Is this a paradigm shift? Is this groundbreaking? Is this no one's ever looked at this? Likely not in emergency medicine. Likely it's been looked at already. What methods did they do? You know, if you're going to look at, um, you know, the the survival of trauma, you know, if you are going to go to Seattle, Washington, where it's mostly young people, or you're going to go to Sarasota, Florida, where I grew up, or as they say, God's waiting room. Or, so when you, when are you going back? Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, in 35 years when I'm old enough oh, oh, to, okay. uh, to it, get in. That makes you feel better. Yeah. So if we're going to look at the survival of trauma and we're going to say, oh, Seattle, Washington versus Sarasota, Florida, you can't make those determinations because the population is so much different. Yeah, demographics change everything. Absolutely. So you cannot compare apples to oranges. So you have to look at the method. You have to look at how they did it. You have to look at their results. Where the, Were their results valid? You know, we do these statistical analysis. If it's not statistically significant, then it's not valid. And then you have to look at their conclusions. Um, and what most of us end up doing is we read these abstracts and we go right to the conclusion. I'm guilty of doing that myself sometimes well, again you have to look at it from an objective lens and kind of and 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 be a little skeptical about it at first absolutely because if you look at the abstract and you're like well you know what that's not really significant enough i'm not going to spend my time on it absolutely absolutely 
Um, so we have to look at that and we have to decide, are they valid and who makes the guidelines? You know, I'm going to get crucified for saying this, but American Heart makes guidelines. Us in EMS have made it gospel. Yeah, that's that's the truth, man. It was never intended for that. And in fact, um, I have uh, spoken personally with Carl Kern, who is now um, the head of the emergency cardiac care or the um, scientific part of AHA. And that's exactly what he said. He said, these are these are meant for guidelines. Um, Joe Ornato uh, has said the same thing, and he writes a lot of stuff for the American Heart Association, is that it's uh, these are really meant to be guidelines. They're meant to guide. They are not meant to be the actual gospel. And think about this, too. I know we're talking a lot about American Heart, but that's where, you know, we get most of our protocols from. Yep. But um, they have to educate. Think about ACLS. Who takes ACLS? Well, everyone. Who's the lowest level of provider? And I'm not really answering that now. And I'm not saying, uh, demeaning anybody, but if you take the lowest level provider and the highest level provider, say that's an interventional cardiologist, their guidelines for ACLS are identical. Yep. There is nothing in between that says one can do this or one can't. Right. We have that everywhere in medicine, but for some reason in emergency medicine, we don't always have that. Mm, mm, I highly agree. Well, well, folks, I think that's going to be where we're going to cut it off today. So tune in next week. We're going to continue a similar discussion, but next week we're going to include some very specific examples of how locally we've been able to utilize evidence-based medicine to further our practice. So until then, we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.